you know, he'll go down as one of the all-time great players. Uh, and a lot of it had to do because of his work ethic and his passion and his killer mentality. I mean, he just had that, you know, late in the game, give me the ball, I'm going to win the game for us. And, you know, the closest I saw, you know, I think Jordan's the greatest of all time, but the closest I saw to him just because of his mentality was Kobe. Welcome to the Go Big Redcast, the Husker Fan Sports Show with Dave Honky. Mac and Boomer. Welcome to the Go Big Redcast. I'm your host, David Gaspers, and I'm with Honky. Welcome back to LSU Football, Bo. Uh, when you get a chance to talk to Joe Burrow, tell him you don't point the finger but the thumb. <laughs> Excellent. I'm also with Mac. Hey, Redcasters. Um, you know, sad news in the sporting world this last week with Kobe going down. Just to remember to hug your loved ones extra tight. You never know when. You're not protected in this world, no matter how much money, how much fame, how much success. You can go at any time. That's the truth, Mac. Thanks. Boomer. Just the idea of Bo Pelini on the same sideline with Ed Orgeron and maybe Carl running loose in the streets of New Orleans. That's got to at least bring a smile to somebody's face. Yeah, it should be good for business down there in Bourbon, if anything, I would guess. Good point, Boomer. All right, guys. Well, I'm excited to do... Another red cast here. We did have a somber moment over the weekend, and uh, Honky had some uh, audio there speaking about Kobe Bryant and uh, Fred Hoiberg's interactions and relationship with Kobe. Uh, obviously, a uh, sports icon uh, at a high level. And uh, one, me personally, I, I'm a Celtics fan, so I can't say I was a, a Kobe fan from a team perspective, but I was very respectful of. His, his ability to play uh, the game of basketball. My cousin out in California, huge Kobe fan, uh, ran kind of that wheelhouse um, where he would have been in high school when Kobe came up. And, um, hey, the guy won five titles with the Lakers to just about everything he could possibly do in the NBA. I, I watched uh, the replay. ESPN had the 60-point final game of his career on last night. Just an extraordinary um, ability to close games. Uh, Honky, I know you're probably not a huge NBA fan, but when you lose an, a sports icon of this nature, it does really resonate throughout all of uh, sports across the country, doesn't it? Yeah, it absolutely does. And, and it is a moment. I think we will all remember where we were at and when we heard or when we read about the accident. You know, everything kind of came together all at once. It was a Sunday. Yeah. We're off of work. It was early in the day. The Grammys that night. Bit in L.A. Of, of, too. In, the, in yeah. L.A. In, it happened in a, in a major market like that. I couldn't stop watching it, I guess, is what I'm getting at. And to your point, Dave, I'm not a NBA fan. I'm not a Lakers fan. I've always respected Kobe from afar, but I can't sit there and say I was a, a fan just because I wasn't a fan of the, of the sport necessarily. But I'll tell you what. When you see what he meant to people, I almost that was get, eye opening. I, I get teared up when I watch all the reactions of people that were huge fans that followed his every move. That when they would find out about it, Cassius mm. Winston, Mac, yeah. you show me the video. Yeah, he found out on the court. He found it on the court by Coach Izzo, and you just see the reactions of people. And I mean, it is it's so heartbreaking. And then when you throw in the fact his daughter being on there, oh my gosh! I mean, that that to me when the with the whew. I grew up Jordan era. Jordan mm-hmm. was my guy. You know, Kobe came in the league right about the time I stopped caring about the NBA, to be real honest. But like you said, he was a high school kid, came in, respect his game. He won championships. To me, that, you know, the, his daughter being with him on that, on that mm-hmm. helicopter and just the man he became and the father he was, you know, you just don't see enough of that. And like that stuff on Twitter when they were showing all the stuff with his little girl, you could just tell she worshiped him. And 
I'm like, that's the stuff that, that hurts. I mean, I know he's an icon and it became so clear to me with the younger generation below us how much Kobe meant. You know, I didn't yeah. realize that. But for me as a dad of a daughter, you know, I'm like, oh, that's heartbreaking, you know. Yeah. I think just, you know, especially being in the social media era too, it, you know, really amplified kind of, like Honky said, the entire day's events. You'd see everybody's reactions almost instantly and people could share a video that much faster about things. And you got some of the pluses and minuses of social media, you know, at the time, the, the rumors that were going around. But you got information faster and you really got that sense of, of what this meant to people because you know we, we were trying to talk about you know what sort of events like this had happened in the past in the world of sports you know maybe you know for nebraska fans it'd be someone like brooke Behringer or you know before our time you'd like roberto clemente you know in his death you know kind of those impacts they had it you know i thought like you know the pro wrestling world when like david von you know von eric or owen hart you know died you know those would kind of be similar sort of events but it wasn't even kind of in this sort of era and really even then wasn't to someone the degree that kobe was and it was just kind of it eye-opening and you know it was heartbreaking you know i'm not a huge nba guy either but you can certainly see what what he meant to a lot of people look i'm not naive i i knew kobe was big but like i guess i almost didn't realize internationally what he meant also and 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 obviously he was starting careers post-basketball i mean he had a was it oscar yeah just a couple things on that honk you're right i mean i guess from a from an international stardom standpoint you know michael jordan actually kind of started that but i think kobe was really at the bullseye of the explosion of the NBA internationally, uh, especially, say, in China. And so he was a, a greater international star, maybe, from that perspective. I mean, it helps that he spoke multiple languages, grew up in Italy, all these different things, right? And uh, I think, to me, it's intriguing. And Max touched on you know the relationship that Kobe had with his daughter there, who seemed to be a burgeoning star, potentially, wanted to go to UConn, very talented, not surprising at all. Uh, Kobe only had four girls, never had a boy, and so uh, it's kind of interesting. He he really ended up becoming a great father to those those children, uh, and that's with the baggage that we know of, of Kobe's uh, issues earlier in his life, where he had had some very serious criminal uh, issues there. But I think it tells the story of mm-hmm. someone, a sports figure, who um, uh, maybe acknowledged uh, the wrongs that he had done. Mm-hmm and um, was doing things differently with his own children, his own daughters. And uh, that's a real positive um, from all of the, the Me Too movement and the sports mm-hmm. conversation about men and, and, and relationships with women uh, that is really positive from, from Kobe and how he turned his life around in that perspective. Yeah, I, Mac touched on that when he said that, you know, the man that he became – I don't know that because I didn't follow his career that close throughout the 20 years. I can't mm. believe he played for 20 years. It, it blows my mind. Yeah. But it is the man that he became. He was a different person and a much more mature person at 38 and 39 as he's retiring and leaving the league than that brash 17 and 18-year-old that came in and said, I'm going to be the next Jordan. And the reality is he became the next Jordan. By the end of it, he grew into a man and it grew into a great father and it just, it, again, it's absolutely heartbreaking that one of the four daughters yeah. was on that helicopter with him. In the world of professional sports, we lack enough positive male role models in terms of being fathers and heads of households and, and, and good husbands. It's just, it's just sad. You know, it's, you almost take it for granted. I just figured Kobe would be around. You know, yeah. I just figured he'd be around, you know, and it's just, it's sad when it's taken away. And it just, it's just, you know, nobody's safe, guys. And now, Scarlet Colored Glasses. 
All right. Well, uh, you know, good conversation, important conversation. Let's talk some Husker sports, though, and uh, put our scarlet-colored glasses on. All right, guys? Uh, and uh, it's uh, off-season, but that doesn't mean a whole lot around Lincoln, to be honest with you. There's always things to talk about, and uh, roster management in particular, um, our recruiting efforts, as well as maybe some departures are always worth noting. Honky, maybe you could uh, maybe start us off with just a rundown of what's happened recently. Yeah, well, let's talk about the current roster. And to your point there, Dave, you talked about the transfer portal and some of the people that have left. We've had four people. We've mentioned a couple of them on the past shows, but let's just lump them all together right now. We have Tony Butler, who Mm -hmm. just left. Jalen Bradley today was announced. Pernell Jefferson, John Raritan. So Mm -hmm. those four and really, from what our where our numbers were, I think we were at eighty nine or ninety. I think yeah. at the end of the year, so I think we're still down to eighty six, eighty five. We'll probably still need to, yeah, because we still got to put a Gifford on, correct? At some point, and the thing is, we're going to get through spring ball, and there's going to be a couple of guys that will leave after spring ball. That's just natural stuff. I mean, I feel yeah. like we're right on for the number. Yeah, and you're going to want to have a few spots for for walk on guys to earn spots. You're going to want to have a spot or two for. Transfer, transfer portal, portal guys. So point is, we're probably somewhere in that 85, 86 scholarship range right now with those four guys that have left. A stat that I saw on Twitter that I thought was really interesting, and this kind of shows, I think, we're young right now. And God, I'm sounding like row the boat guy, Boomer. And I know we like to make <laughs> fun of Coach Business Casual, but 83% of Frost's first two recruiting classes redshirted. And as a comparison, all the other coaches hired that same year. The closest with Chad was Chad Morris at sixty six percent. And Dave, how, how's Chad Morris doing right now? Pig suey, uh, not well because they're not giving him a third year, right? I mean, uh, honestly, that's really interesting. You think about that. He he went through a similar process to Frost trying to rebuild that roster, and uh, they didn't give him a third year. So. Kudos to Nebraska to actually have the uh, long-term vision to see what Frost is doing because that's a huge number. 83% mm-hmm. is just it's gigantic. Yeah, and Mac, think about that for a second. It, it is exactly what Dave was just saying there. It is showing patience. Mm-hmm. And, th- and we live in a world today where we don't have patience. Mm-hmm. Uh, Arkansas fired their guy two years into the – not even two years into his build. He's trying to redshirt kids. He's trying to build a, a program, and he doesn't get that chance. You could make the same argument in Florida State with Taggart. He doesn't get the chance. Frost right now is getting that opportunity. I mean, we're going to be in year three, and we're still going to be very young when you look at that roster. But I guess that starts to look forward to let's talk about recruiting for a second. Uh Not only do we already have this class already pretty much in the books. We Uh talked about that last week, the class signed in December. But this last weekend, we started to have junior day, and we can focus almost all of our attention right now a year from now. And so, Mac, you're the recruiting coordinator. I mean, give us a little bit of a synopsis of what's going on right now in recruiting and, and looking forward to 2021. Well, like you said, Hon, those first couple of years, the transition year and even the second year, recruiting is about building relationships. And, you know, when you uproot your entire staff and you move them to the center of the country, those relationships either have been severed or you've got to start all over and you know, reconvince people. We kept a little bit with the continuity of staff, but... Now we're in year three. He's in year three. And we're finally to the point where junior day actually matters. You know, we're and, and the 500 mile radius can really be assessed, evaluated, and recruited. You know, you look at the state of Iowa just next to us. They're going to have probably a record number of D1 athletes this year. And we're mm-hmm. all over them. When you're talking about a guy like TJ Bowlers, 
you know, that's somebody that has been to the campus several times already. You know, he's he's close enough to get a visit in. He's a big enough time recruit that he's been a focus for us. Uh, the Fedone kid, that tight end. I mean, another, Council Bluffs, another yeah. guy that's been a huge focus for us. And when you talk, it's crazy because Iowa State's had some of their best years real recently. Iowa has basically owned us for the last four. And yet we are totally in their kitchen stealing and, their guys. And they're not coming into our kitchen anymore and taking our guys. And that is a big deal of really putting a border on 100%. it. 100%. You know, we have the that's one. Driven you, that's driven you crazy over the years. Yes. Is, is slow playing Nebraska recruits. And that's just not something I've really seen this staff do. One of the guys that was at the junior day last weekend is one of our recruits that we got from Iowa. We've got guys now coming here and recruiting the other players. We are a year ahead now in the recruiting cycle. That's what Frost, Dave, that's what he's been able to do now with this class. That's where he's he's got this program at. So we've shown some patience. Now we're at a point where we can start to actually look ahead a year. And, and some of that credit goes to Moose, right? Because he because Frost knew coming in, I'm going to need time. He probably didn't know how much time he was actually going to need. And to not have any pressure from you know upper management, from his AD, to go ahead and let him build. Because like you said, what, 83% freshman, redshirt freshman? And then to go ahead and focus on juniors right now, not trying to do a whole bunch of patching with Juco guys, allowing this to build. I know the product on the field hasn't shown it yet, but at some point this is going to hit. At some point the culture is going to match the work ethic and that's going to, and that's going to manifest on the field. I, I truly believe that to my bones. We're a kicker away from a few wins last year that would have, <laughs> right. that would amount to a bowl game, you know, and everybody would just be in a lot better mental state. So, and we got a kicker from Iowa Western uh, this there year to walk on. Thank so, you, Iowa. You I mean, it is, it is a long-term build. I mean, I think once you're get away from the season a little bit and the emotion of those losses, et cetera, we can talk about the complete rebuild of the program in the vision that we all want it to be, right? And that is, it's painful to acknowledge it's going to take that long. And yeah, we don't want to be patient, quote unquote. But uh, the reality is we all know what it's going to take. And uh, this is the right approach, building that foundation. Honky, it's interesting from a recruiting standpoint in the, the fact that we have our hands in the cookie jar over there in Iowa so much. And we've had success in South Dakota, for example, in Kansas. And sometimes, you know, it's, a, oh, well, that's out of state and we have to go get uh, Fedone against Iowa or Iowa State. But that's a case where his family has been uh, Husker fans for, for years, I believe. And that's one of the advantages we we have in, in that situation, even though he's being recruited nationally across the board as one of the top tight ends in the country. And, you know, that Nebraska brand, uh, you know, some people think it's faded and it's not the same thing as it used to be. But for for those type of situations, I mean, Fedone is practically an in-state recruit almost, right? Wouldn't you feel like sure. that? Sure. I mean, I guess this has been well overplayed over the course of the last year, but you know, Joe Burrow was essentially an in-state recruit, just happened to be out of Ohio, but he, boy, he wanted to come here, right? And there are guys that we need to make sure we get. If they have connections to the program, if they are within a certain, you know, mile radius of here, if, if they're a fit, if, whatever it is, there are guys that we just need to go after and, and not lose. And there's enough guys, I, I mentioned Burrow there, but I don't care if it's the Harrison Phillips or if it's the Drew Otts or the Noah fans. There are just guys over the years that, that we should get. And I look at you know, the fact that we've been able to get now a year ahead into the recruiting world, the fact that we're right now we're talking about juniors instead of, you know, trying to frantically sign the rest of our class in February. And that's where we were at three, four, five years ago under Polini, uh -huh. where we were scrambling to get the end of classes <clears throat> together. Right now, we're looking at junior day. 
But Dave, we just offered Omaha Central's Deshaun Woods, who's a 2022 class guy. He's the second guy in state now that we've offered, in addition to offensive lineman Devin Jackson from Omaha Burke. These are sophomores. So think about that. Between Jackson and Woods there, those are guys in the next class after Prochaska. Avante Dickerson, Cluster Johnson's kid, yeah. that are next year's guys. Yeah, so, I yeah. mean, we're already two years down the road into getting in-state guys or going after them. I mean, that's we're not slow playing anything. Let's go get the best kids. When Frost and Company first got here, Henrik and Hickman were by no means a, a given to come oh, to Nebraska. Oh, they were not We locked. were so far behind. And we were lucky to kind of scramble and dig our way out and, and get those guys to come here. Mm-hmm. And Williamson, or Byerson Williams, is that the kid who oh, went to Wisconsin? Bryson Williams. Bryson Williams. We couldn't get him back. But I guarantee you that's not going to happen again. If the guy wants to come here, or if, if we feel like he can play, we're going to recruit him and give ourselves a, an opportunity to enlist his services, right? The, you mentioned it, that recruiting is about relationships. So think about day one of frost he comes in here and there's the press conference welcoming him to nebraska and his first order of duty after he got done with that press conference was he went across town to bryson williams he took care of the five mile radius not Mm -hmm. the 500 the five mile radius and he offers the kid what we should have done months months earlier i give him all the credit in the world he stuck with absolutely yeah he he did what you should do he stuck with his commitment to wisconsin i give him that credit but Frost was already laying the, the inroads there that we're not just going to let guys leave. And by the way, you know, the next kid that's from Southeast or the next kid that's from these schools, I mean, that that builds upon itself yeah. too. There were schools from outside of the state that came to recruit Heinrich, that came to recruit yeah. Hickman. And those same schools, when they're here in Omaha, they're going to see Dickerson. They're going to mm-hmm. see Prochaska. They're going to see Woods. They're going to see Jackson. They're going to see Johnson. They're going to see these guys. And it's it's a no-brainer that the next year they're going to go after those guys too. And it builds upon itself. Cluster Johnson wrote a great tweet the other day. He called out 24-7 sports and rivals. And he said, hey, 24-7 sports and rivals, come to your job in Nebraska. There's a lot of kids that need to be evaluated. It's sad that some colleges don't recruit as hard here because a kid don't have a damn star by their name. And they go to college and ball that says it's not important here. I get where he's coming from. He's, he has three kids. Yep. One of them is being offered by Nebraska now. The first two were Wyoming and South Dakota State kids and probably could have had opportunities if there had been more attention on them. And it's not just his kids. Hmm. They have teammates. <laughs> There's kids all throughout the metro and all throughout you know the state. Nebraska needs to be the first one to show interest. Mac, can you talk a little bit about uh, – Honky gave you the title of recruiting coordinator. Congratulations. We're in the promotion. It justifies my raise. <laughs> yeah, there won't be any races. That's right. Yeah, thanks for the treasure there. Thanks. It's interesting in the sense that uh, you know we, the conversation with uh, Lubick getting hired, and he had some experience being a recruiting coordinator in the past. And now Ryan Held is our recruiting yes. coordinator. Is that mm-hmm. right? And just the the conversation about what it takes to, to have a, an effective recruiting plan and the organization and the the coordination of the coaches and communication from from the phone calls and the text messages to actually visiting the players and building those relationships, et cetera. It takes an immense amount oh, of work. The reality is is that I, I feel like I think Riley staff tried. But uh, maybe a bit misguided at times. It's pretty well known that Pliny, who just got hired to LSU to be their defensive coordinator, didn't really enjoy the recruiting aspects of of the game. And at, in his last few years, that kind of fell off. Can you just talk about a little bit of like the amount of effort it takes to be ahead of the game enough to Honky's point to offer someone 
two, three years out and feel confident that that's a quality offer? Regardless of Ryan Held being the, the recruiting coordinator, it is always a team effort. I, I hear a lot of recruits talk about when this staff calls them, it, it's as a staff. They almost sit down and have like mm-hmm. a speakerphone conversation where everybody's on there. Gets gets them feeling like you're not just wanted by this one guy. You're wanted by the you're wanted by the staff. You're wanted by the program. We want you to come here. You need that, and you need your guys on the you know the the guys whose names we don't even know. The people who are getting the phone numbers. The guys oh, who are sure. understanding schedules. The guys who the behind the scenes the guys. behind the scenes guys who set that up. And this is the time to call. You know something that recently just changed. There's a new rule going into effect starting Thursday where the official visit count now resets on April 1st versus August 1. Mostly that's based on the fact that, you know, that there's an early signing date period, but that's also going to help a lot of these, you know, new coaching staffs when they come on. What I understand to be an effective recruiter, you know, just by the little I've gleaned from what I've read is it's continuously grinding and and building those relationships and talking to those guys mm-hmm. and being and being genuine and being honest because it really doesn't make sense that we're out recruiting Iowa. It really doesn't make sense that we're out recruiting Wisconsin or even Minnesota. We've had the least amount of success recently than any of those guys. But there's something very genuine about the staff, very genuine about Ryan Held. It, it was to me that was the perfect call for for the recruiting coordinator. And when you talk about Lubick. That sounds like another guy sort of cut from that cloth. He's a grinder. He's a guy that goes out there and, and, and talks and just, and just, you know, it's not X's and O's. It's not what can we do for you. It's, you should come be a part of this program. We're going to build something big to it. And it's obviously working because like you said, Hunk, we're already on to juniors. The 2020 class is done by early signing yeah. period. We've actually got a little wiggle room, well, you think, know, to, think to about- add a portal at a, you know, wherever you want a grad transfer, something like that. I'm ex- really excited. <laughs> We say it all the time. Once we start winning, <laughs> I'm really excited to see what the total vision of this staff will be. I think it. I think it's going to be really good. Think about this from the patient standpoint to build a program. Two years ago, Frost was taking over a program where Riley. I'm not saying anything malicious against him. He just used a lot of the visits. There were very little visits that Frost even had available yeah. to him. Right away in year one. So he's taking over a really bad roster Even management. Even that year, though, his closing percentage on official visits to to commits was well, ridiculous. Yeah, and Riley's was terrible Well, because he was bringing in a bunch of guys that we weren't going to. Self-evident. Gonna, yeah. <laughs> but the point is, is that that's where we were two years ago. Now, we haven't won a lot of games since then, and I get that. We're now in a position where we already have, at the exact same time of year in January, we have our entire class already signed a month ago. And we are sitting here offering in-state kids from 2022, yep. two years ahead, yep. ahead. Now, this is a building process and everything. Frost needs to win games next year. That goes back to our loud noises show from about a month and a half ago. I mean, there's got to be w- wins that come along with this. I, I We get that. But, Dave, when you think about this, we have gone from two years ago not even having official visits to even offer kids – to now to a point where we are a year and two years ahead. You mentioned the difference between two years, right? And then you talked about building inroads, trying to get Byerson Williams to come here, right? You keep I, saying Byerson, it's Bryson. Whatever. <laughs> I, Nash Hushmusher. What am, yeah. I, no. What am I talking about? <laughs> I'm the wrong guy to Just be. say Williams. What? Nash Barker. You try to, but you, you try to get Williams in here, right? But you can't do it with a full-on scholarship offer. But you, but you go out there and you make a good effort. Yeah. How does that manifest in two years later? Isaac Gifford's coming here. Yeah. On a, was it a gray shirt? Is that in like the little blue tech, shirt? Blue shirt. Coming here on a blue shirt. A guy that's totally scholarship worthy for a lot of programs around there. We're getting him to buy in and come in now. That's that's the difference in, in relationship building and, and the genuine 
nature of this staff. So what you said is true. It's changed. In two years, it's changed. We just got to win some games. Dang. (laughs) Dave, we need to win games. We do need to win games, but about the loud noises, this is why I felt at that time we we were still going in the right direction. I totally get the frustration, but uh, when you step back and look at where this program has gone over the last 24 months, uh, there's a lot of good things to look at. So absolutely. Shameless plug, but if you you haven't listened to our loud noises show from about a month and a half ago, go back and listen to it because it is the raw emotion of fans right as the season's ending. And we are feeling the same things that you guys are feeling at that Raw. at that moment. Yeah. But you've got to be intentionally not looking for the positive to not see the progress that has been made. Everything that we just broke down. I mean, from from all the recruiting and the roster management standpoint. I mean, my goodness. Yeah, there's a big difference. There's a big difference in how the program is being run today than when it was under Riley or even under mm-hmm. Bo under his last years. And there's just a better level of organization and one focus on on getting this thing fixed is apparent. Um, it unfortunately is taking longer than anybody wants, and that includes the head yeah. coach. Closing this out, I guess it's kind of like having an exit interview talking about it. And I thought there was a great article in The Athletic with Tony Butler, who just left the program and you know, great young man now. I mean, I think he's grown over the, the course of his four years at Nebraska. And he did a Q&A with, with Mitch Sherman, just basically talking about his time here and kind of leaving the program. One of the questions was about, you know, there was so much talk about buy-in over the last few years and how good or bad that was. And, you know, he talked about, he goes, the buy-in wasn't necessarily the issue. It was more so just getting the weak-minded people out, the ones that were not going to class, the ones that were not showing up at time for workouts. Uh, they were the problems. It wasn't the whole class of the older guys in general. But he goes, I think 95% of us were bought in, and that Frost was really mentioning that small number, the 5% that were the problem. And I don't know if it's 5% or 10%. I think the more important thing is maybe who those 10% are and how loud yeah, how sure. loud they are, right. right? But what I really liked about Butler leaving here is he left on very – very positive terms. He's very positive and bullish about the future of this program. And he just realizes that he's not probably going to be a, well, he's not going to be a part of it, but he's There's very, a real youth movement in the secondary. And, and, and I, but he totally understood that, which I really appreciated that. Even if they need to work somebody out or, or process somebody out, so to speak, you know, to get numbers going, he understands the situation and, yeah. and, and he's supportive of the program going forward. And, and I just thought it was a really good Q and A. And Dave, I don't know if you had a chance to read that or not. No, I sure did. Um, and yeah, I, I completely agree with you. I mean, I, I felt like that's the type of exit interview you want to see from a, a senior who ultimately just didn't see playing time in front of him at Nebraska. Uh, wanted an opportunity to, to find that. I'll be curious to see where he lands. Spoiler, Oregon State. Just kidding. No. <laughs> I'll tell you, I Dave, I root the kid on him. Yeah, it was a, a good little window into the program and some of the things that that you heard in that or read in that interview uh, really um, backs up uh, some of the conversations or uh, interviews that we heard with Frost mm-hmm. where, you know, he, he calls out players and you're like, oh, maybe you shouldn't be doing that. But there's a player saying, yeah, there was five or 10% that was still not bought in last year and still doing things not the right way. And for whatever reasons, mm-hmm. right. And um, it's, it's crazy to think that's the case. Um, and sometimes those players are still contributing, so it's hard to just kick them to the side when they may be uh, valuable from a, a, a talent perspective. Um, but that's that's changing, and there's not going to be any of those guys left uh, very mm-hmm. soon. And you know, and one of the questions was about 
the hype going into last season and you know did you guys feel it and did you guys feel pretty pretty good and he goes yeah we were very confident but I think we kind of lost our confidence in the season and there was a lot of worry and fear of going back to where we were in 2018 mm-hmm. and by all means some of that's on them you know win those games against Colorado early they lost some games that probably started to, to put that pressure on them but the point was is that I mean they felt that pressure but he also looks towards the future he says I think the guys that they have back. They're going to win eight plus games next year. They've got the formula now. He's very bullish on them. And one of the other things was they asked the question about, especially young guys, the the defensive backs. And he brought up Miles Farmer and Quentin Newsom. And he said those two guys are going to be great players here. And it's going to be really interesting because that secondary next year we lose Lamar, but we've got a lot of guys back. And of course Deontay Williams comes back with the injury. And you've got all the guys that redshirted from a year ago, and now you've got the incoming guys, Gray and Francois, I think, are here on campus already. Wow. The secondary, almost above all other position groups, seems to be the best recruited to the coach. Fisher has done the best job of stocking his room with the guys that he, frame-wise, mentality-wise, seems to want. Period. You know what yeah. I mean? It's not it's not patchwork at all. Like he's getting long, lengthy guys who like to hit and play multiple positions. You do lose Lamar. Yeah, <laughs> there would have been a time there would have been a loss. time and place I'd have said no big deal. But Lamar balled out last year and he's it's continued to do so in the offseason. So he, he is a big loss. So but that is a position group that I'm not that worried about, I guess. And and you know, statements like that kind of reinforce it for me. Hey, let's end this uh, segment uh, with uh, Lamar Jackson and Darian Daniels, maybe. They did uh, play the Senior Bowl. Looks like we're going to have a couple guys drafted, right, huh? Yeah, definitely. And I think Khalil Davis has a future there. I can definitely see us having three to to four guys, hopefully. And uh, that's a a great start. That's a great chance to get back into the the draft world and, and start a new streak. You getting cold this winter? Then warm up your soul by getting your ass to Plowboys, the award-winning Kansas City barbecue that is now in Lincoln. Brisket, pulled pork, baby back ribs, barbecue nachos, burnt ends, and more. Call ahead and pick up your order or pull up a chair and pair that meal with a frothy mug of beer. You can find us located inside of Berries on 9th Street. Now delivering to your home and office. And party planners, sit back, relax, and let us cater your next event as you win over the love and respect of your friends, family, and co-workers. Feel that winter heat with a plate full of mouth-watering meat at Plowboys Championship Barbecue. Tell them the Redcast sent you and receive a free high five. Hell yeah! It's time to sweep left. All right, we are sweep left. It's our wide-angle view of all things college football. And it's time of year where you can just randomly talk about stuff, and uh, we have the, the time and space to do so. Uh, things like blue blood status, uh, college football realignment, uh, et cetera. Right, Boomer and Honky? Uh, and Mac. Mac's favorite conversation, I believe, is conference realignment, if I'm not mistaken. Um, we did have an interesting tweet uh, that we uh, got some good response from. Actually, I think it came from Kyle Yumlang initially, but then I think uh, we retweeted it about conference realignment. He proposed a uh, four-team mega-conference setup, uh, which was kind of interesting, right, Honky? Yeah, he, he basically said, 
what we've all talked about for years, get rid of the Big 12. (laughs) (laughs) You end up with four mega conferences of 16 teams each, which are uh, eight divisions of eight teams each. The ACC, the Big 16, and he even took the Big 10 logo, and instead of having the G, he turned it into a 6. So it was, you know, the B16, the Pac-16, and then the SEC. In the process, he dropped four teams that are currently P5 programs. Rutgers, BC, Baylor, and Wake Forest, you're gone. And he added four teams, UCF, Boise, BYU, and Notre Dame. And that's how he kind of came up with this this 64-team alignment. Boomer, you posted something out there on on social media, and we got quite a bit of response from it. I'm just kind of interested in general because you're also – you're really big on this to begin with i'm interested on in your thoughts and i'm interested on what our redcasters thoughts out there were on social media their response to this yeah there was a lot of good uh, feedback on this and this is an idea that's you know popped up over the years you know going back to the the first big realignment pushes and it was kind of one thing i was during that whole time frame when the big 12 looked like it was fraying when colorado left or we left i was kind of hoping it would shatter, and that Pac-16 was a possibility, so something like this could come to fruition. But um, it, it was definitely interesting, kind of some of the, the feedback we got on this. Posted some of it, and it, it, it's interesting to see. Um, some people liked the idea, especially what the new Big 16 West would be. Some of the feedback we got was it makes uh, the Big 16 West you know, more manageable. I mean, it looks quite a bit like, to some extent, what the old uh, Big 12 North would have been. Uh, for those of you that didn't see the tweet, the new Big 16 West would be uh, Nebraska, Kansas, Kansas State, Iowa, Iowa State, Missouri, switching from the SEC, and Wisconsin and Minnesota. I think generally he kind of tried to design these new conferences and divisions more based on geography than on just the randomness they are today. So you do see some teams kind of moving around, going back to different places and going to different uh, conferences and what they are now. Um, so that was one take that was interesting. Some of it was, you know, Notre Dame kind of, you know, finding a permanent home in a real conference. You know, they would permanently be in the ACC in this point. Some people were critical of what the ACC would be, that it's still going to be garbage like it was this year, which fair and it kind of would be. Uh, some people had commented about how it really makes the SEC just ridiculously dominant. The SEC would consist of, you know, Texas, Texas A&M, LSU, Arkansas, Old Miss, Mississippi State, Oklahoma, Oklahoma State, Florida, Georgia, Tennessee, Vanderbilt somehow survives relegation, Alabama, Auburn, South Carolina, Kentucky. I mean, that is a very, very solid conference with a lot of money, a lot of pull. Yeah, so Boomer, to your point there, the SEC takes on in this scenario, they would take on Texas and Oklahoma into the West. Two Blue Bloods. Yeah, and Oklahoma State. Yeah, and Oklahoma State, Mm -hmm. which would bump. Alabama and Auburn into the east. So, I mean, the SEC just gets stronger. And then they oh, yeah. d- they dump Missouri into the Big Ten West. <laughs> you know, yes. So, we, we get to absorb Missouri, the, basically the low-hanging fruit of the SEC. We also get to take on Iowa State, Kansas State, and Kansas into the West, which, yeah. you know, you can look at that on one set, you know, on one hand, and you can go, hey, great for the West. The West becomes Nebraska, Wisconsin, uh, Minnesota, and Iowa, plus these other four but well, they look, games would be easy to get to. I know. Yeah. It's, it, 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 and there is that. But it yeah, geographically it, makes sense. But it, you just look at it and you go, that's such a weak division compared to what the SEC now becomes like this conglomerate. I mean, it's... Yeah, and that is the, probably the big challenge with this. Unless there was some overarching NCAA mandate that something like this happened, it's hard to see the advantage to, say, the Big Ten doing something like this. Because what does adding Iowa State do to the Big Ten? Nothing. Yep. 
Yeah, you know, what does, you know, yeah, in, in football terms, what does adding the state of Kansas do to Nebraska, or excuse me, to the Big Ten? Nothing particularly. I mean, Kansas isn't competitive. Kansas State doesn't move any needles, anything like that. Yeah, Missouri might be an interesting addition, and that was part of the fun back in the you know early realignment days when we joined the Big Ten was just trolling the Tiger message boards as how convinced they were going to be in the Big Ten, and it <laughs> turned out it was us, and God, that was glorious. That was pretty fun. I yeah, I, I, I was banned repeatedly from, uh, or may or may not have been banned repeatedly from uh, the Tiger message boards for trolling them during that period, but uh, can't prove a thing. And Dave, I want to throw this back to you here for a second. When I look at this, it looks great on paper, but... It, I also get back to the point of, like, who's driving these changes to even make these changes happen? Because when I look at, like, the Pac-16, I see Boise and Texas Tech. Not of, not Texas, right. not the big schools, but Texas Tech and Boise just magically. Oh, and by the way, also BYU and TCU. They just magically appear in the Pac-16. Who is driving that change to bring those teams in? Is that even who they would want? No, probably not. I think the key here. This conversation is always interesting. From a math equation, it'd be so nice if there were 64 programs that deserved being in a conference, right? Because that would make everything simple. Four 16-team conferences. You have eight-team divisions. That means you would really have good rivalries with seven uh, teams that you play year in and year out. That sounds familiar to us. Uh, that can date back to the Big Eight, right? It's nice to have seven teams that you play um, your essentially your alternative, uh, your opposite division. You only maybe play two or three of those teams, and then you go around the country to, to get the rest of your your schedule. Uh, but the math doesn't actually work out that way, right? I mean, we have programs that have been in these Power Five conferences that maybe have not done anything on the field of merit being there, Wake Forest and Boston College, et cetera. Um, but the reality is, is, is that's where they're at and they're not going to give that up. The way to change all that and make the Big Ten or the Pac 16 or whatever accept some of these changes is you'd have to have a organizational structure where there's a money sharing agreement across all those teams, right? That's how the NFL works, right? I mean, how the Buffalo Bills have survived, uh, those type of things is because of the, the profit sharing essentially that occurs across the entire NFL. And so you'd have to have a different financial structure. Right now, mm-hmm. our financial structure is based off of conferences that strike their own deals with TV contracts and and make those things work. You're going to have to have one TV contract mm-hmm. um, that then distributes the money equally. And then you may be willing to uh, take certain teams in that you wouldn't normally do, et cetera. Yeah, and I looked at this, and I was talking with a coworker about today. Everything comes back to who drives these changes, right? Because in some cases, some of these divisions and, and conference realignment, the way they're doing it, I don't see the conferences driving these changes because it doesn't necessarily make them stronger. Right. And on top of that, okay, let's look at how the postseason might might work out of this. This becomes eight divisions of eight teams each. You could conceivably, if you said, we're going to do a 16-team playoff. You could just do eight. Well, you could do well. Just wait. You could do a sixteen-team playoff, and you could invite all eight champions of their divisions and eight wild cards. And by doing so, you can effectively eliminate conference championship games. That weekend is gone. There's no reason to play it because all the teams that would have been involved in that would now be in the playoff. So that weekend, right after the season's done, that's your thirteenth game. 
Then you would play maybe two weeks later, the round of eight. Two weeks later, you're at New Year's. You're playing the round of four. And then a week or two later, you're playing the championship game. And you're literally on the same schedule as you are right now. And from a game standpoint, the only thing is the two teams that would play for the national championship would be playing a 16th game. Those would be the only two teams. Which, by the way, uh, North Dakota and James Madison each just played their 16th game this year in FCS. So the NCAA isn't against 16 games. Um, the next question that, that I just mentioned postseason, but what do you do with non-conference if you go to this route? Do you play any games that are not from these 64 teams? Do you get into the round of five? Do you play FCS or do you only play teams that are within this? Cause you think about it, Dave, you're going to, and Boomer, you're going to play seven teams from within your own division. Do you want to play teams from your other division or do you got to play teams from other conferences? I mean, I mean, when you got, <laughs> As weak as some of these conferences look, I don't think you need to. <laughs> well, the, the the point is, you you certainly don't want to go beyond those teams, right? No. Yeah, and, and that's been a, and that's been a question on this too. I mean, because we talk, you know, there's these 64 teams, and we talk, do you want to play other teams outside of it? But we also forget there's a lot of teams the the existing group of five that didn't get invited to this. I mean, you've still got your Memphises, your you know South Floridas. The teams were somehow kicking out like Rutgers and Baylor, you know, politics notwithstanding to this whole thing, you know, what are they going to do? I mean, are they going to just go to the FCS? Are they going to create their own magical new conference or, you know, new structure in college football that <laughs> yeah, survives? To, to, to Boomer's point, uh, I mean, this is just one guy's, you know, dream scenario. Mm-hmm. And, and however that shakes out, it's not really important. The point is, is that the politics and the logistics of of creating this this perfect uh, sixty four team, uh, comp- it's just not going to play out. There's mm-hmm. lawsuits waiting to happen, practically, right? Dave, I love the conversation. I, I can't believe I'm the one that loves this because I, I typically can't stand getting into this. But the reality is, on paper, it looks it actually looks good on paper for a second because you're thinking geographically. You're thinking, oh yeah, you know, get rid of the Big Twelve and we can make this work. But when you actually think about what it would take to make this happen. Who's driving it? What happens to bowls at this point? Because if you're no longer sure. going to yeah, play... I, I don't care what happens to bowls, Honky. I just want to get that on record. If I haven't done that enough on this podcast, I, I, I just please, true. I want that entered into the record. I don't care what happens to bowls. So, Boomer, you don't care about bowls, and you're right, by the way, thinking that way. But many people do care what happens to bowls. But let's think about this for a second. If we're kind of saying that if you're going to go this route, you're not going to play non-conference games anymore against uh, FCS opponents. Or a group of five, even. You're not going to play those either. Well, then you probably aren't going to get to a postseason in the bowl season where you're going to be playing group of five against these teams either, right? I mean, there really essentially is no longer a group of five if they can't be a part of... You're splitting them off into a separate... Subdivision. Yeah, you're creating yeah. a super FCS division, essentially. The Fresnos and the Wyomings are going to be playing the North Dakota States and along with the MAC schools. I mean, you just kind of group every team that isn't a part of these 64 teams. You're grouping them all together. So if you're not, if you're not playing them in non-conference, why would you play them in the bowl games? Yeah. And that, and that's a possibility. I mean, and, and if, and if you start to do that, Boomer, then if you're not playing them in the bowl games and you have 16 teams playing in a playoff, you are now eliminating so many more teams from playing in bowls because they're playing in a playoff, a, a first-week playoff. And guess what, Boomer? This gets back to what is your dream scenario. The bowls start to become less meaningful. There should be less bowls. There should be less teams playing in bowls. 
Yeah, and again, I'm fine with that. You know, I really don't care what happens to the the Gasparilla Bowl or any of those things. Sorry <laughs> to any of our big listeners, you know, on the Gasparilla Bowls, you know, staff, whatever. And, and that is probably the big problem in this scenario is there are all the group of five schools that, you know, are going to fight this tooth and nail. There are the schools that get kicked out that are going to fight this tooth and nail. You know, for listeners that, you know, weren't familiar or weren't listening or paying attention to the, like when the Big 12 originally formed, you know, people would ask, why the hell was Baylor invited to this? Because for anybody who's... Ann Richards. Yeah, anything knows anything about Baylor pre-Art Bryles, they sucked. I mean, they were a terrible team. They really had no business being in the Big 12. That's a political thing. That's the only reason they were in the Big 12 over TCU. There's no reason they should have been there, and that and that's just reality. Uh, you know, and I've seen other people suggest ideas about how could you make something like this work and keep their group of five, and I've seen people, since this is all just fantastical and for fun anyway, that you could do something akin to the way the English Premier League soccer does where you have, you know, relegation in this, and you would take the bottom three or four teams in each conference that has the worst records and guess what if you suck you get booted down to whatever the group of five is and you take three or four teams from that group of five and move them up into a conference you can constantly cycle that in now there's no way in hell that would ever happen in american sports we would not allow that the powers that be would not allow that to happen there's just too much money involved and we just cannot allow you know, blue blood teams like this to ever possibly fail and fall into that roster. So this offseason chatter, that's clickbaits, and it's fun to talk about and see what happens. But is it realistic? Probably not. Yeah, I mean, the only way relegation could potentially work is, again, somehow you're, you're profit sharing to the point where you're you're not um, uh, reducing uh, the incomes of the schools that get relegated, at least immediately. And you would have to create a, a group of five championship. I mean, there's there's no way if you're breaking up, uh, you know, FBS football down to 64 teams, you have essentially 64 teams you're kicking out, right? And so what are they doing, right? You're, they're closing up shop, which again, from a financial standpoint, doesn't seem realistic, mm-hmm. or they're dropping back down to FCS and joining the North Dakotas. Yep. Um, which they, uh, or you're, you're combining maybe the top level of FCS into the group of five and, uh, they have their own championship. And that seems ridiculous, I suppose, and, and not probable, but, uh, history does tell us that division one football has split before, right? Yeah. Uh, there was division, you know, uh, 1A and double A or whatever, how it was used to be phrased now, FBS and FCS. And that was all one division up to 1970 or so. Right yeah, there. right around there. Yeah. And there have been teams that have like even voluntarily stepped down from what's the FBS level now, like Idaho. Was it Idaho or Idaho State that recently dropped? It was down? Idaho. Yeah, Idaho did. The Vandals, yeah. And, you know, we've looked back. If, if you go back, there were what would be division one FBS teams like William and Mary would was an FBS program in the early 80s. Mm-hmm. Which is, you know, so there are teams that have made those jumps and kind of downgraded themselves, essentially. And there probably are some schools and programs that probably should consider that just from a financial perspective, that realistically, the way what? college football is structured, they're never going to compete at this level, and it's difficult to do so. And we always see the reports of how many schools are in debt or having to raid student funds to keep their athletic department afloat. But for prestige purposes, they don't. But you're you know. talking about UCLA, right? Yeah, like UCLA, for example. Yeah, good, good job there, Bruins. <laughs> well, well done. I guess my point with this is that you get to a point where how different are some of the 
group of five schools, they are more akin and they are closer to FCS schools in some cases than FBS schools. Eastern Michigan, which is right down Stadium Drive, 10 miles to the east of, of the big house, if you go to Eastern Michigan, it looks a lot closer to an FCS school than it ever does an FBS. And that's kind of the reality. I don't know what happens to the Wyomings and the Fresnos of the world in this scenario of four mega conferences, but I don't Dave, you mentioned it. You go like, are you going to have an F are you going to have a group of 5 champion? I don't think so. I think if you went this route, I think you would have just kind of a a division 1AA champion that that kind of groups all the non 64 teams together. So you would you would hypothetically say that the group of five drops down to FCS? That's basically it, because if you're not playing these 64 teams, because these 64 teams are going to be playing each other in, in non-conference and conference, if you're not playing those teams then, and if the only chance you would even possibly have to play them would be in a bowl game, which would be weird, because then you're playing a team that's essentially not in your your division in bowls, so that that's weird. I would almost think those other teams, they would just end up getting into kind of an FCS scenario. It would take a complete reorganization here, right? We're talking about scholarship yes. limits as well, right? Absolutely. FCS Absolutely. is 63 opposed to FBS 85. And so there is a greater financial commitment that anybody's playing in FBS does right now than the North Dakota States do, Abs- right? Absolutely. And, and so uh, I'm not dismissing this thought that they could drop down to FCS, but you may need to... F- modify FCS to accommodate those schools and say that South Florida, for example, for some reason they didn't make it in. I don't, I don't buy that. Um, you know, there's some compromise. There's 78 scholarships or whatever it is. Um, but I, I think if, if you actually want to try to sell this to the Eastern Michigans of the world, the Wyomings of the world, the Fresno States, who have no realistic opportunity to compete for a national title, is you'd have to give that uh, segment of the of the schools, the group of five, um, a scenario where like we're going to give you a TV contract. Yeah, uh, yeah, you're going to play Tuesday night games and Thursday night games and Saturday morning games that aren't prime time, etc. Um, but we're going to advertise the heck out of your playoff as well, and you can e- compete for a national championship that you can't compete for right now because of the financial um, requirements it takes to to beat the Alabamas and, and Michigans of the world, et cetera. That's the only thing that you're gonna ever going to tempt them with. So to yeah. just push them da- back down to FCS isn't going to make them jump at that, right? You got to give them something. If the NCAA bothered to run its own college football postseason instead of outsourcing all this to bowl games and giving them a huge cut of this, there would be plenty of money to go around to distribute to schools like this. Just, hey, if you're listing NCAA execs, just give that a thought. I mean, it works for the March Madness. Hey, why not this? All right, guys. Well, uh, the other topic that we thought we'd crack tonight, you know, and solve everything is uh, <laughs> uh, Blue Blood status. And uh, Honky, I think it was Pick 6 Previews, right, that uh, sent out their annual poll on uh, Blue Bloods? Ah, uh, yeah, and Britt Tiancia and, and Mac, you and I, I think we'll be chatting with him probably in the next couple of weeks. And, and Sweet. We'll- We'll get another great interview with him. Awesome dude. Uh, he sent that out here in the last week or two, Dave. And with over 120,000 votes, uh, he wanted to ask all these different teams. He, he sent out like 20 different polls saying, you know, who's a blue blood and who's not. And it came back where only eight teams had a greater than 50% yes, you are a blue blood. And it was Alabama at 94%. 
Ohio State at 92, Oklahoma at 81, Notre Dame at 76%, USC at 73, Michigan at 70, Texas at 66, and yes, dear old Nebraska U at 65. Those are the only eight schools that were deemed blue bloods, over 50% saying yes, you are. And just to give some perspective, Nebraska at number eight was 65%. The next one was Penn State at forty six percent. So it, the ones that were that fell below that fifty percent, uh, are you a blue blood or not? Were Penn State, Florida State, Florida, LSU at forty one, Miami at thirty seven, Tennessee, Clemson at thirty one percent, Georgia, Auburn, Washington at six percent. So it, it gives a little bit more of a perspective again. What is blue blood? What isn't? But Nebraska still has that brand, if nothing else, Dave. That you know sixty five percent are saying that we are. Yeah, that's interesting. I, I, I don't disagree with uh, the top eight. Uh, I've always been curious. I, Penn State, I feel like, has done enough over uh, five or six decades uh, to, to be at that status. Um, and then there's a few others. I mean, you know, LSU, you mentioned, was that 41%? Is that right? Yes. And, uh, you know, uh, there's actually some maybe anti-recency bias on that because, I mean, they now have – what three titles in the last 20 years and that, that's that's pretty good um and so they're almost being docked for not having a, a significant title run earlier in their uh program history so uh, you know i mean uh, there, there could be a little more wiggle room there but it, generally speaking i think the top eight have been very consistent uh for quite some time in in being in that status and there's certain things there like Texas and, and USC that uh, often uh, they, they've had their own own dips, uh, significant dips at times, and uh, they've always maintained that status. Uh, Nebraska needs to do their part here by, uh, you know, kind of regaining the uh, the prominence on the field. Right, Boomer? Yeah, I would I would tend to agree with that. I, I... I think when I was watching a lot of the Twitter arguments on this, a lot of it was there was some recency bias to it. And a lot of people get into fights over, well, they haven't won a national title in, you know, so many years. And with Nebraska's case, we haven't won since 97. My God, what have we done? But I think to actually, when we define what a blue blood is, it goes beyond simply when is the last time you won a national title? I mean, there's a lot of teams that you'd consider kind of a royalty blue blood thing. I mean, Michigan, when is the last time Michigan won a straight up outright national title on their own? 19. 19- 48, yeah. I believe. I mean, in 97, they would have lost to Nebraska. That's not even a question, so we can just <laughs> ignore that. I mean, but does, do most people consider Michigan a blue blood of college football? Yes. They, they've they struggled to yes. beat Ohio they won State. won the most games. Yeah. And they've struggled to beat Ohio State for decades, and but they are. So it, a lot of it is just the whole branding aspect of it. And I, I actually disagree with a lot of the voters. You know, Penn State is probably a I mean, they're a blue blood in college football. Some of that may just be because they were independent for so long and weren't in a conference. And just... Multiple uh, undefeated seasons went unrewarded. Yeah, for yeah they State. had a lot of unrewarded undefeated seasons where they could have been a national title contender and they just, because of the structure of college football, they weren't allowed to. And, and like Tennessee was like, I think, what were they, like 35% or in the 30s as a blue blood? I mean... Tennessee's probably a blue blood of college football. I, I would be hard-pressed to say they're not, just for longevity, history, 
aspects of it. Yeah, there might be a disagreement. Yeah, I don't, I don't. I don't see Tennessee as a. Blue you don't see Tennessee as one. I, not, why would not you not? All. Why would you not consider Tennessee one? Uh, I feel like they've they've been in the dumps as long as we have and didn't have any that that much success prior to that. I mean, when I think of Tennessee football, I think of Peyton Manning and Reggie White, and that's about it. I mean, yeah, you got to go back to Nealon, right? Yeah, I, I mean, mean, that's a and they're, they're, Previous title would have been maybe like fifty two or yeah, so. I mean, and they get they get whooped up. Uh, on well, I mean, ninety eight they won one. I mean, you know. Yeah, yeah. besides ninety eight, I'm saying it goes back to the early fifties. Okay. Um, I mean, I would put I would put Georgia ahead of Tennessee probably, and I wouldn't put Georgia as a blue blood necessarily either. So I mean, well, that's, that's just fair. has that one title. Yeah. What I do think is is that. Issues. The thing that's consistent amongst the top eight, which, again, are Alabama, Ohio State, Oklahoma, Notre Dame, USC, Michigan, Texas, and Nebraska, the one thing that is consistent amongst all of those is that everyone has ebbs and flows. There well, are, and, there and, are, and there, I was not even close. And that's was, the thing. I was not close. <laughs> but, but everything's cyclical, right? So people that sit there and say, well, Nebraska, look at Nebraska last 15 years. Okay, yeah, that's a that's a moment in time. If you just take a freeze frame of right now and you go, Nebraska, last 15 years, we don't look like a, a blue-blooded football. But I go, go back to 2008 after the first season of Nick Saban in Alabama where he went 7-6 and six and lost to Louisiana Monroe at the end of the season. And you go back the 15 years prior, at that point, if you were doing this exact same poll right then, Alabama wouldn't have looked like a uh, – a blue blood. They had a number of losing seasons at that point. Yeah. Okay, go back to Oklahoma in 1999 after the first season of Stoops, and I think they went seven and six that first year. They did make a bowl game, but if you go basically, you look at the entire decade of the 90s. Yeah. Oklahoma doesn't look like a blue blood if you only are doing that. Everything's a freeze frame in time, and that's why what I always have appreciated about us, Dave, is that we have looked at blue blood as being something bigger than just this moment in time where you're at. I mean, it really is a historical thing. It's how did you do on the field? It is where are you at from a, a fan base standpoint? I mean, it is, there's a lot that goes into it. And we've always said with this program that we've always said with this podcast that Husker football and the fans and the support, we will not allow this program not to, to be great. Yeah, that's a, a a really good point, Hockey, in the sense that I was listening to um, uh, Steve Sipple. I, I believe it was on his own show early break uh, when they were talking about uh, the Big Ten West and which program has the uh, best um, kind of like long-term uh, potential. I think I believe they framed it as who has the highest ceiling. And it was interesting, you know, they're talking about like, oh, do we have a higher ceiling than Wisconsin or et cetera? And, and what they didn't get at, it was a good conversation, uh, but the, what they don't talk about there is that, that fan base and the commitment to be great, mm-hmm. this long-term uh, commitment by the fans that they will not let their program uh, slide. And and that doesn't mean that we can control wins and losses, yep. right? But it does control how much we care, how much uh, the alumni base and the boosters and all those type of things will just simply not uh, let the program uh, fall off the face of the earth. And that's a unique thing in the mm-hmm. sense that, like, you know, it, that takes generations to develop. That's absolutely right? right, Dave. And there were responses to Pick 6 previews where there were responses from people that said, that said what would it take for a team to lose blue blood status? 
and it would take a lot to be quite honest. And I can only think of a couple. Apathy would be the biggest. Well, one. apathy by their own. Fan apathy base is something. And Boomer, you actually went to a Husker game this last year, an away game of a team that I can't think of too many teams that that have lost blue blood status. I really can't because oh, yeah. it takes a lot. But Boomer, what would be a team that you think maybe has lost blue blood status over the course of let's say the last fifty or sixty years? Oh, I mean Minnesota obviously is the team that has lost blue blood status. They were for the start of college football till just about nineteen sixty. They were a college blue blood. They were the power of essentially college football from essentially the Mississippi River until the West Coast. I mean, the, the little brown jug between Minnesota and Michigan were, was a far bigger rivalry than Michigan-Ohio yeah, State yeah, I mean, up to that yeah, point. Min- I mean, Minnesota, I mean, they were our nemesis for the first 30, 40 years of Nebraska football was Minnesota. It wasn't Oklahoma. We played them here and there, but Minnesota was the team we, we strive to compete with, and they were the power of the entire Great Plains, and they are a team that had that had that pinnacle. They were they had national titles for what they were and, awarded. And what happened in 1960 in Minnesota? Well, the Vikings showed up, and that kind of drew attention away from their college team, and it just kind of killed the sport as far as college football goes in Minnesota. You know, the Gopher fans we've talked to, the five dollar bits of broken chair guys, they've said the same thing, and it's kind of the way it was in Minnesota. And and Boomer, you're absolutely right. And they also started losing games. I mean, if they if they would have kept winning games, and they had the Vikings, in fairness, people, they were even decent through you know the first few years of the '60s. They were good for a while, and then, but again, like you said, once they start losing, it's easy to get shoved off that front page. And Dave, like living out in Colorado, we've talked about this before. And I think in our Colorado uh, episode when we talked about that whole rivalry, just how difficult it is for like Colorado Buffaloes to get press out in Denver. When on Saturday, what are they talking about? They're talking about the Broncos game the next day. How do you get that yeah. kind of publicity? And, and the Gophers ran into that problem, and that's a big challenge. If you're not winning constantly year in and year out, you're going to get shoved to the side for a professional team, and that's just the nature of college football. I mean, if you look at the teams that are great in college football right now, how many of them are competing with a with a pro team regularly? It's not very many, and it's kind of an oddity. That's of a it. good yeah. point, Boomer. So. It's not very many boomer, but one of the teams that's that's securely listed on this blue blood is is USC, and to me that is a fan base that is about as fickle as it gets. I mean, when they are not winning, nobody shows up. Pete Carroll phenomenon was kind of sweet, and, and and you know they had a bunch of Hollywood stars on the sideline, and Reggie Bush was running up and down the field, but that hasn't been the case for and, a while, and they're and, not even close to falling off. And this boomer list. just mentioned how you know the pro thing plays into it you just talked about how great usc was 15 years ago what has changed in la in the last 15 years nfl wise they keep losing teams no they keep ga- <laughs> they keep gaining teams well, well yeah now, but they don't care about their well, their nfl teams either so la is a weird but isn't situation. that strange like yeah. usc it's not even in question i mean I, I assume it's you know the rose bowl and all that stuff it allows them well, to there's kind of titles flip. involved there too mac i mean right but, but when you talk about the apathy of a fan base it seems like of all these teams like Alabama, Ohio State, Oklahoma, Notre Dame, Michigan, Texas, Nebraska, if I looked at any of those fan bases, I feel like probably the easiest ticket for me to get on an average season would be USC. And then Notre Dame. Yeah, probably. Yeah. Well, yeah, I don't necessarily disagree with that. It's a different fan base. Uh, I, I've lived in Los Angeles, and, and I've uh, talked to USC fans, and it is not as 
uh, wide of a base, uh, but the base itself is is uh, deeper and richer than we could pretty much possibly imagine, right? And Tell that so to Aunt Becky. When it co- <laughs> exactly. It, when it comes when it comes to USC fan base, there's enough that still care about winning when it comes down to it. I mean, the uproar about keeping Clay Helton is a good example of that. They still want to win there. It may not be as wide of a base, but it's a deep base. We'd commented about this maybe between ourselves. I don't know if we'd mentioned it on Twitter in a previous podcast, but just recently when the idea was USC was Kim Clay Helton and we saw the social media outburst against keeping him, you're not going to get that from UCLA. If they were to fire Chip Kelly next week, how many people there would care? Heck, half of them probably didn't know he's their coach. But <laughs> USC fans were in an uproar here and there, and they were trashing the USC president and chancellor and whatever the heck they have there at USC. I mean, it was a, a very serious thing there. So... Yeah. There, there probably is some truth to that. That they, the people that they're the only they, West Coast blue blood. Yeah, they are. Yeah, they really are. They're, yeah. What's crazy is the blue blood thing didn't necessarily, in that sense, transfer over to who the most valuable college football programs are. And this is kind of the third part of our sweep left that we were going to talk about. Twenty four seven Sports, um, they did a list of who are the most valuable programs, and I don't know exactly how you assess these, but USC is not listed here on the top fifteen. And number one is Texas. They're at $1.1 billion. That would be their value. I guess everything's bigger in Texas. Their market value, right? Ohio. Yeah. And, and, and think about that. Texas has not been good, right? Mm-hmm. But yet their value is still number one in the country. Number two is Ohio State, just over $1 billion, And Alabama is essentially $1 billion. Michigan's $925 million, Notre Dame's $913, Georgia's $891, Oklahoma's $886, Auburn's $872, LSU's $852, Tennessee. We talked about them early. Tennessee. Tennessee. Tennessee is $728 million, Florida's $635, A&M $541, Penn State, the team that's not a blue blood, $519 million, and then Wisconsin, $475, and Nebraska, 472. We come in at number 15. 472 million. I don't know exactly how you equate these numbers. I don't know where they all come from. But the point is, USC is nowhere on that list. And Nebraska is number 15 behind teams that are not blue bloods. But I don't know how you assess these, but that's how they, they came up with who the most valuable programs are. Well, they're not counting donations from people trying to get their daughters on from the crew team. <laughs> if those were if those were factored in, I feel like they'd be very high. Whatever happened to predictability? The, the milkman, milk the paper boy, boy and even TV. TV. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's that's hard to top, guys. I don't know where to go. Uh, yeah. I don't know how that uh, valuation occurs. You're trying to essentially apply a, an NFL uh, approach where, like, oh, if Jerry Jones wants to sell the Cowboys, it's worth $2.4 billion or whatever. And it's interesting. Of, of those top 15 programs listed, only one of those is a private institution. That's Notre Dame. And so I, I'm wondering if uh, with all the different kind of metrics they took in to create the list – they may not have had a full picture of, of other private institutions. Uh, uh, University of Miami would be an example of that. USC could be an example of that, where you may not have the full picture. 
and um and and that may skew the results a little bit there. I don't know that if that's the case or not, but it's hard to imagine a USC in a major market. If, if we're thinking about this in NFL type terms, right? Think of the Rams, uh, LA Rams. We're in St. Louis. Stan Kroenke, who is actually owns the, the Denver Nuggets and I believe the Avalanche as well, uh, owns the St. Louis Rams and they're worth, I don't know, 800 million or something like that. He gets the, uh, approval to move into LA and they're suddenly worth 2 billion, right? And so it's hard for me to imagine USC, um, considering them being, to Max's point, they're the only blue blood on the West Coast, the only program that has that attention thrown on them. When they are good, they are huge uh, That with the LA market that they are not on that list. Yeah, I agree, Dave. And it's not just, you know, when you think West Coast, I mean, just if we're just talking value, if that's what it's about, Mm-hmm. I would think Washington has a high value just by the nature of where they're at, right? And they just built a new stadium and they have – I think Boomer touched on this earlier. What does it mean to be a blue blood? I think you have to define that at the very heart of this the entire discussion. And what it is is it's more than just what your record was a year ago or two years ago or three years ago. It's more than just looking at a five-year period. It is support. Yeah. It is fan base, titles, it is success, it's trophies, it's, trophies, it's, it's, it's all everything. Americans, it's pros, it's fan base. I mean, there's a lot of factors into it, and, and tradition and longevity are a big part of it. And yeah, and in the West Coast suffers in some of that just because of the time zone, frankly, and a lot of it. Well, you know? yeah, such terrible dedication on their part. I mean, we stuck up. To I those. would say one of the top um, criteria of blue blood status is the amount of uh, podcasts dedicated to your football program. I got to feel like the, the Huskers are doing pretty good based <laughs> off of Chaz's list alone. I mean, I'm a Husker fan and I have heard of exactly four of those and I'm on one of them. So kudos. Listeners, I hope you've listened to us yeah, on mean, that wow. You just took one of my parking shots away. Sorry, bro. Totally <laughs> that hurts. Totally yeah. All right. Well, you know, we always have one of these conversations per year. I believe this constitutes that one conversation, even though we might bring it up again in the off season. Mm-hmm. Um, anything else on this honk? Feeling good? Nah, I, I think we we beat it. To, we beat it to death. Yeah, good job, guys. <laughs> Murdered. Well, I enjoyed that beating. <laughs> I enjoyed it. This is a fun conversation. If people only knew how much we talked before we started recording, it would be <laughs> that would be something else. <laughs> It's true. Uh, all right, guys, let's get out of here with some parting shots. Honky, I'm sure you've got three or four. Well, first I want to start with uh, with the great review that we had, and we had a great one from <laughs> Dom. I like when we start that way, too. <laughs> this one came from Dom769, uh, but he, goes, he gave us a five-star review, and he goes, I listen to every episode every week throughout the season. These guys are hilarious, down-to-earth, and knowledgeable about everything Nebraska football. Great personalities and by far the best Husker football podcast I've found. Go Big Redcast. Goodness gracious. I'll Who tell you what, Dom. Guy? I don't know who you are. Uh, Boomer, you're our treasurer. Send him a check. But thank you very much, Dom. And Is Dom an anagram for Redcast Rob? Somehow, <laughs> it, I mean, it very like... <laughs> could be. We love Redcast Rob. He's a big fan of ours. Um, and he's a big supporter of ours. Another supporter of, our, of ours is uh, Chaz in SoCal. And he... You know, sent a tweet out the other week. He he did a great job. You know, leave it to Chaz to figure out a way to get all the Husker podcasts together. 
And he and he did a great job of that. He he kind of collected all the the ones that are out there, and I can't believe how many there were. Mac, there's there's a grip of them for sure. I mean, I'd like to say like you know where they all come from, but I I'm sure a lot of them you know there's several that are older than us. But but the point is, there's we'll a see lot of how them many of them want to arm wrestle. That's what I want to know. You know what? <laughs> we are supportive of all the shows out there. There's a lot of great shows, and it's something that is very blue blood of us as a program is that we have a lot of. I- Supporting absolutely, the absolutely. I guarantee it'd be a blast to, to sit down in a bar and have a drink with all of them. Yes. So you know what? I, I know Chaz is going to come down in uh, spring for the spring game and stuff. I'll tell you what. I'll. I don't know if it's a challenge or whatever, but anybody that's doing a podcast and Chaz out there, I hope you're listening that right now as we're saying this. Anybody that is involved with Husker football from a podcast and from a Twitter account standpoint. Let's get together in the spring. Yep. Let's do it. Yep. Yeah, as long as there's drinks involved, we can make this happen. Yeah. Oh hell yeah! I agree. As long as it's All not right. a mainstream bar, we'll, we'll find something. We'll find something a little obscure. Yeah, it's got to be obscure. Yep. Yeah, just like uh, most of our podcasts out there. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> All right, Mac. What do you got? Uh, I, I know everybody was disappointed with yet another Husker streak coming to an end with the Super Bowl coming up, and we don't have a Husker participating in it but i would like to mention that old yoshi hardrick is going he did win the gray cup in uh in the canadian football league so uh still champions huskers i mean <laughs> let's let's start a new tradition plus the xfl is going to have feature about five former huskers demorne pearsonnell alonzo moore uh gerald foster I'm, I'm forgetting a couple but so uh the the pro movement's alive and well everything's great blue blood pro big red <laughs> All right, and Boomer. Darn it, Mac, you took uh, my hot take there. I was uh, going to uh, you know, pimp the XFL there, that there are still Huskers <laughs> out there that can uh, go to a title game. You left out uh, Brandon Riley and, uh, oh, gosh, he's on the Seattle Dragons. Uh, Mohamed. Uh, Mohamed Cissé. Cissé, yep, he was on the Seattle Dragons. So Husker <laughs> fans, don't worry. There's still plenty of time for for your favorite Husker players that have gone pro to uh, to win a championship. So it's all still there for you. So go Big Red. Good stuff, guys. Well, uh, enjoy the Super Bowl this weekend. Uh, maybe the Chiefs could actually win a title the first time since 1970 when they were in the AFL. Or maybe not. I don't know. We'll find out. <laughs> I'm okay with not. Let's go with that. Hey, the Patriots aren't winning, so that's the best news. For now, let's call that a Go Big Red cast. Go Big Red. Oh, maybe not. <laughs> I like that.